This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Get your Bibles open, if you would, to Revelation 6. Revelation 6. Before we begin, I just want to let you know something. You know, over the past seven plus months, I've interacted with numerous colleagues in ministry, and uh, it, it's been a challenge over the last seven months, but I want you to know that uh, particularly based on what I've heard from them, there is no other church I would rather be journeying through 2020 with than this one. This is a fantastic community of people to be a part of. We've got a great team of staff and elders, and I want you to know that uh, if you're going to go through 2020, uh, this is a really good church to do that, okay? I'm going to spare you all the details about all those other guys and what they're dealing with, but this is a great church to be a part of. Um, You're going to need to remember that as we look at this text, Okay, you're going to need to remember that as we look at this text. I, I teach this not because I've got it out for somebody, but because it's in the Bible. Okay, and I've got to teach it. It's there. It's in the Bible. I need to teach it. Last time we looked at Revelation 6, 1 to 8, and we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I gave you a couple of interpretive tools to put in your belt that will help you understand this book. The first is to remember that revelation is cyclical. It is not linear. It repeats itself. It takes you from the first century to the end of the world multiple times from different angles. You can't make a huge timeline of revelation 1 to 22. You can't, it just doesn't work. That's the first thing. The second thing is to remember it is prophecy, which means there's multiple fulfillment Not just singular fulfillment. I gave you an example of that from Isaiah 40. Isaiah, the prophet, is prophesying about the return of the exiles from Babylon. And he says to them, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. What is he talking about? Well, the people he was preaching to weren't yet in Babylon. And he's saying to them, you're going to be carried off, but the Lord is going to come and he's going to deliver you from exile. That's what the prophecy meant. But there was a further fulfillment of this prophecy, which is why John the Baptist announces Jesus' ministry with the very same words from Isaiah. So it's possible and common for biblical prophecy to have multiple fulfillment. If you keep those two things in mind, Revelation will become a little bit clearer. Now, in, in that last time we looked at this, we looked at chapter 6, 1 to 8. Jesus slits the first four seals to begin enacting God's purposes for judgment and blessing. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are given authority by God to bring about war, civil strife, murder, economic breakdown, death. These four horsemen are riding forth currently will be riding forth and have been riding forth for 2,000 years. We live in the day and age of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Today, Jesus continues to slit the seals. There's seven of them. By the way, seals, I don't mean... I don't mean that. 
just seeing if you're awake. <laughs> that was not in my notes. <clears throat> the seals are the, the melted wax, yes? You take a ring, push the imprint of the ring down onto it to seal a document. You got a rolled up document. That's the seals. He's slitting the seals. We'll never think of that the same way again. <laughs> Today we're going to look at what happens when Jesus slits the fifth and the sixth seal to further enact God's scroll containing his purposes for judgment and blessing. Let's look at it. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So this fifth seal is the cry of the martyrs. And they're in the very presence of God. And why were they killed? Because they took seriously the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. Are there hills you're willing to die on? Now often there has been deep hostility towards people who take the word of God seriously because such people cannot be easily squeezed into the world's mold. Now it's possible, I suppose, to be some sort of thoughtless inerrantist who doesn't read the Bible, doesn't really believe it, isn't really shaped by it. Such people are a threat to no one. But if you believe the Bible is God's word, if you're the kind of inerrantist, the kind of believer, the kind of devout, reverent reader of the word of God, such that the word of God shapes your life and your values, it shapes how you rear your family, it shapes what you do with your money, how you organize your time, the kinds of conversations you have, the kinds of things you watch or do not watch, the kinds of things you find amusing. If you're that kind of believer, you are a threat to society. Society has never been happy with believers of that sort. And some of them get killed. Missiologists who study this sort of thing will tell you there have been more Christian martyrs over the past 150 years than the previous 1,800 years combined. That's the truth. There has also been more missionary work and more church expansion in the past 150 years than the previous 1,800 years combined. Coincidence that those two converge? Not at all. Isn't this in fact what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 13? The parable of the wheat and the weeds? What do he say? Let both grow. Will the world get better? Yes. 
Will the world get worse? Yes. Let both grow. Now, I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but let me tell you what's going to happen. There are going to be more wars. There are going to be more wars. And more evangelism until the end comes. The church will continue to grow and there will be many, many more martyrs. There will be more revivals and there will be more persecution. Let both grow until the end. These people pictured here, because of the word of God, because of their witness to Jesus that they've maintained, have earned the deep hostility of the world and ultimately died. They are under the altar. And these martyrs are spoken of in glowing terms, glowing terms. Oh, that we would be so faithful to the word of God that we would earn the deep hostility of the world. It's difficult to answer the what would you do question. But would you be so public with your faith that you would be willing to worship in church on Sundays when it's not safe to? Now, why are the martyrs pictured under the altar? Well, if you recall our study this summer, we looked at the atonement. You remember that? The blood of the bull and the goat, the high priest brought in, the day of atonement, eventually puddled at the base of the altar, the mercy seat. The blood represented its life. This is a way of saying that their untimely deaths are from God's perspective a sacrifice on the altar of heaven, pleasing to him. This is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 6 sees his impending death as an offering. He sees his death as an offering to the Lord. He says the same thing in Philippians 2, 17. These people are Christian martyrs. They are martyrs because in an age when it was not popular, they held to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Many readers of this verse find this an incongruous passage An inappropriate prayer. Surely, they say, this doesn't square with what the Lord himself demonstrated on the cross, does it? What he prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Or Stephen, the first Christian martyr, crying out in Acts 7, Lord, lay not this charge at their feet. But this prayer seems to be bloodthirsty vengeance. 
Thus, one commentator writes, it should be frankly recognized that this is not a Christian prayer. Bold words. How should we think our way through this? Some of you remember our study on the love of God. One of the goals I had for that message was to get you to understand that in order to build a theology on a particular topic, you need to take into account all the Bible says about that topic. You can't let one passage carry the weight while all the others get relegated to the back row. So we saw in that message that there are at least five different senses to the love of God. There's a love that God has for himself, father for son, son for father. There's the general love and care that God has for the world at large. He causes the rain to fall and sun to shine on both good and wicked people. There's the yearning love that God has for people to repent and believe in Jesus. For God so loved the world in all its badness that he gave his one and only son. There's a particular selecting love Jesus has for believers. Ephesians 5 makes the case that a husband's love for his wife is different than his love for other women precisely because Jesus' love for believers is different than his love for those who are not. And we saw that there is a certain kind of conditionality to God's love for his people such that Jesus is able to say to his followers, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. These are all ways to talk about the love of God and they're all found in the Bible. Now, if you absolutize any one of them, you will quickly destroy biblical theology. For example, if you absolutize God's love for this vast, wicked world and never talk about God's elective love or relationship love, then you have never any place to talk at all about what the Bible says about election. You don't have any place to talk about obedience. You don't need either of those things because God is this kind of sentimental being in the sky who spends all his time and all his existence just loving people. If, on the other hand, you absolutize God's love for the elect, then there's no way to speak about God's mercy and generosity and kindness to all of humanity. What is needed is an understanding of God's love that embraces all the Bible says about it. And part of the job of thinking Christians, like you and me, is to observe all these different ways of talking about God's love and hold them together such that the total picture of the love of God is right and faithful and true to who God is and what he's like. Exactly the same sort of reasoning must take place in a passage like this. If you come to a passage like this and absolutize it, then what you get is a kind of warrant for endless prayers for vendettas and judgment and vengefulness. On the other hand, there is a streak within liberal Christianity that quotes our dear Lord's words on the cross as if it's the only way the Bible speaks of how Christians pray in regard to persecutors. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But somehow they're not concerned for all the passages that speak of the holy anger of God, the justice of God, the terror of the Lord, the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. They're not interested in justice or holiness unless it happens to be the justice that's on the current political agenda, but not justice from God's point of view, which protects his sanctity 
that is devoted to his holiness, that is passionate about upholding his supreme value. Now, if you absolutize one or the other, you lose something in sacred scripture. It is important that Christians not be bitter, vengeful people. It is important that we be forbearing. It is also important that we be passionate about holiness and concerned about upholding God's name, integrity, and supreme value. You see, these people under the altar are not individually going up to God and saying, I want justice done. I was martyred and it wasn't fair. It's not what they're saying. They're not crybabies. They're in the presence of God. And as they see the transcendent splendor of the throne room of God, collectively they say, how long, O Lord, will you put up with this? Are you not concerned to enact judgment? Your people, your covenant people, died. The more clearly you see the glory and holiness of God, the more you'll pray prayers like this. Verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. Why? Until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. It is God who says there are still more to die. There are more martyrs to be named. And God knows every one of them. He remains sovereign, and when their full number is accomplished, then judgment will be affected, and not before. Wait. This is what they're told in verse 11. Now, this is not a question of God controlling their impatience, but assuring them he's still in charge. The cause of God will be vindicated. Meanwhile, they are to enjoy their blessings. The white robes are symbols of reward, purity, blessing. This is what John sees in the fifth seal. This is not the final consummation. This is the seal that gets us to the final consummation. But meanwhile, effecting God's purposes for salvation and judgment is what will take place. There will be these four wretched horsemen on the earth and there will be martyrs in heaven as God brings about his purposes for judgment and salvation. Verse 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars and the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. 
The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains, and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So in the sixth seal, we reach the end of human history. Now, I understand the concern that says in 21st century America, we shouldn't be talking about judgment because it scares people. It's a valid concern. But if that's a concern you have, please understand, Jesus does not share your concern. For no one spoke on hell more than he did. Just one example, Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying there's something experientially worse than death. He's saying don't fear death. There's something after that that's more terrifying. Verses 12 to 17 are the dramatic reenactment of what Jesus is talking about. This passage is one of seven passages in the book of Revelation that take us to the final judgment. Seven. Now remember, all of Revelation is a letter. All of it's a letter written to seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey. If you were part of the church in Laodicea and you hear this, being read aloud at one of your gatherings, what would you think? I think the preferred response would be to say, I don't want that to be me. I don't know exactly what it all means, but regardless of the metaphors, it's metaphorical of something that sounds pretty horrifying. How do I make sure that's not me? The purpose of these verses is to incite fear in those who do not follow Jesus. To fear and flee the wrath of the Lamb. The New Testament writers, even Jesus himself, employ numerous tactics to persuade people to follow Christ. A professor of mine in seminary once wrote an article exegetically detailing this. The title of it sums it up. Motivations to appeal to in our hearers when we preach for conversion. Among those described are things like relieving the burden of guilt, freedom from shame, the blessings of heaven, satisfying a deep sense of need, just to name a few. But one of those the New Testament employs is fear. That's what we have in these verses. We shouldn't be surprised by this. right? We saw this in Jesus' customized, tailored messages to the seven churches. He's got some pretty harsh things to say. That's Jesus talking. That's not John. That's not anybody else. That's Jesus talking. He's got some hard things to say. 
So yes, instilling fear over the wrath of the Lamb that is to come is a biblical motivation to employ. So I have in mind three different types of people who do not follow Jesus. It would be good to listen, understand what God is telling us in these verses. The first is the hostile. Those not interested in, those antagonistic towards it, towards Christianity, towards the gospel, they say it's a myth, it's silly, it's false. Second, the seeker, those who are curious and express a desire to know the truth and wonder maybe the Bible is true and Jesus too. Well, if you're wondering about that, then you should wonder about all of it, including the ones that don't mark it well in 21st century America. Third is the false follower, the unsaved Christian, those who call themselves Christians but have no true affection for Christ. No inclination for spiritual things. No zeal for godliness. No treasuring of Christ in your heart. Church-going people, yes. Moral people, yes. But ultimately, no affection for Jesus. I believe God gives us the contents of the sixth seal for the benefit of people like this. Now, when we get to verses 12 through 14, we get hit with one metaphorical image after another. Earthquake, sun turning black, moon turning blood red, stars falling from the sky, the heavens rolling back up like a scroll. You look at it and say, ah, that's pretty primitive stuff. Everybody knows stars are much bigger than the earth. How can you speak of them falling to earth like figs off a tree? doesn't make sense. The sky recedes like a scroll. You know, wrapping paper, when you get out the wrapping paper, you cut it, right? And it just rolls back up, right? That's the sky. How, doesn't make sense. How does the sky do that? doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Well, undoubtedly, there are some common Hebrew metaphors and Hebrew thought going on here. Nature reflects what is going on in the spiritual arena. We have examples. The mountains and hills burst into song. That doesn't make sense either. It's in the Bible. The mountains leaped like rams. The trees clapped their hands. This kind of language is found all over the scriptures. Nature reflects what's going on in a spiritual arena. Part of it is that language. But the sixth seal does, I believe, take us to the end. The end. So just where the metaphors end and the final consummation of the new heavens and the new earth begins, I'm not sure. For one of the things you get in the book of Revelation is the kind of approach to prophecy I mentioned earlier, multiple fulfillment. So how is this fulfilled metaphorically in the run-up to the end? And at what point is this the end? I don't know. But notice something. Do you see that phrase back up in verse 10? The inhabitants of the earth... This was used in chapter 3 as well. I didn't mention it. We're going to see this occur again and again. The inhabitants of the earth, or I think the ESV has those who dwell on the earth. It's a technical term, a formal title, given in the book of Revelation to unbelievers. 
It's not talking about those who live on earth versus those who live on Mars, as though Revelation is predicting human existence on another planet. It is talking about where one's hope identity is bound up, the earth dwellers. It's this and nothing else. There's nothing beyond this. This is my life. My identity, my joy is wrapped up in this earth. Notice the inhabitants of the earth are the recipients of God's judgment in the sixth seal. The unbelieving world is judged in the sixth seal. Not believers. The sixth seal is God's answer to the prayer of the martyrs. How long, O Lord? God says, wait. And then in the sixth seal, we fast forward in time to the end. God says, I heard that prayer. Notice what unbelievers dread most is not death, but the unshielded presence of the glory of God. At the end of the day, these people are not frightened of the earthquake. They're not frightened of the coming of the end as the established orders fall apart. It's not what it says. It's a terrifying thing to stand in the presence of God without hope without knowing him, without being accepted by him. And they ask, who shall stand on the day of his coming? Who can withstand it? The day is here. Who can withstand it? Kings and princes are mentioned not because they're the worst of human beings, but if any might normally feel secure, it is the upper end of society. But here, panic and confusion are everywhere. Princes, generals, the rich, the mighty, the slave, the free, everybody. They hid in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, even among the very things that are falling apart and quaking. Better that than face the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the lamb. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? It is a dreadful thing to stand in the presence of God, not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Back in 1894, Bert Shattuck wrote a hymn entitled The Great Judgment Morning. I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel and stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hand raised to heaven that time was no longer to be. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains they prayed, but their prayer was too late. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. A pauper, he stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness when death came was left far behind. The angel that opened the records, not a trace of his greatness could find. 
And oh, what a weeping and a wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. Now, I fear the reason we are so uncomfortable before such passages today is not because we have arisen to a higher order of evolutionary greatness, which manages to dispatch verses like these to our primitive past. Rather, I fear the reason we are so uncomfortable before such passages is because we have lost the notion of sin and its odium and offensiveness before God. We just do not see ourselves as God sees us. And yet, this is not how the book ends. For in truth, in the book of Revelation, the glory of God's grace is also measured by the terror of his fury. God, in the book of Revelation, has the right to judge us. It's the kind of creatures we are. In hell itself, people will not be crying out, God, have mercy to me. I would like to believe now. They will still be shaking their puny fists in the face of God, defying him who made them. That's what the last chapter says. Let him who is filthy be filthy still. Still no repentance. Still attracting the wrath of God to them. And yet... He is also the God who sent his son to die and bear the fury of God's wrath that human beings like you and me rightly deserve. I realize verses 15 to 17 are incredibly unpopular today. Many churches avoid them because it's no way to attract a crowd and grow a church. But on the day described in these verses, I do not want to hear any of you say to me, Brian, why didn't you warn me? Let me conclude with five brief points of application. First, this is my father's world. Never for a moment think when things are falling apart that God has lost control. The picture here and throughout the book is overwhelming. Even in the portraits that are most grim and defying, there is a God who is still in control. It was given to this angel. It was given to this horseman. It was given to this spirit to do such and such. such. God has the number of martyrs in mind and he knows their names and the end won't come until that has been met. It is God's scroll containing his purposes for judgment and salvation, and it is Jesus slitting the seals and opening it. This is my Father's world. Second, this world stands under his judgment. 
We read about it in the most famous chapter in the Bible, John 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Or whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. It is not as though God is waiting to see which way we'll go. We come into this life and he's waiting. Are we going to be good and he'll bless us? Or are we going to be bad and he'll curse us? No, we come out of the womb, we're conceived, and we have staked our independence from him. We have insisted we want to go our own way. This world is already standing under the judgment of God. From a biblical perspective, it is never, never too surprising that judgment falls. It is all the more surprising that it hasn't fallen sooner. Three, for those with eyes to see, every instance of judgment is a prefiguring of ultimate judgment. There are no accidents in God's universe. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that when judgment falls on this person as opposed to that person, that this person is, more, is, is worse. Habakkuk had to learn that lesson. Sometimes God will use a very wicked superpower in order to bring judgment on his own covenant people who by all sociological standards are a less wicked people. And does not Jesus say in Luke 13 that those on whom the tower in Siloam fell were not more wicked on those, not more wicked than those on whom the tower did not fall? But he also says, let you all should repent unless you two perish. I wonder how many at the end of World War II thought, well, has that taught us a lesson? Has that put a judgment on human hubris? All of our sins by which we think we can organize our way out of anything, teach our way out of anything, put capital into new things to solve anything. Just think for a minute. What were the nations most affected by the mighty Reformation? Germany, England, and through England, America. What were the primary nations caught up in the World War II? When judgment falls, every instance is a prefiguring of ultimate judgment. Never forget it. Fourth, that final judgment is incontestable and irreversible. There is no higher court of appeal. And fifth, our only hope is the Lamb of God. The slaughtered lamb standing in the previous chapter. The lamb who brings about God's purposes for both judgment and blessing. He is humanity's only hope. That is why the church stands to sing, Jesus, worthy is the lamb that was slain for us. This is why the church stands to sing the Lamb of God in my place. Your blood poured out my sin erased. It was my death. You died. I'm raised to life. Hallelujah, the Lamb of God.
Perhaps you feel the terror of God in your soul today. You know you have never really trusted him. You've been indifferent. Maybe flat out rebellious. Will you not cry out even where you sit? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because if you do, you will find him to be exceedingly gracious and good. A God who reconciles sinners like you and me to him who repent and place their faith in Jesus. He works to draw us. He transforms us. Cry out where you sit. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then join the church in singing worthy is the lamb that was slain for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are a God of unsearchable greatness. Before you, we are nothing but vanity and iniquity. Our sin causes us to forfeit your favor. It strips us of your image. It banishes us from your presence. It exposes us to the curse of your law. And we can't rescue ourselves from this condition. But in the glory of your goodness, you devised a plan that invites us to your son, who is himself the power for salvation. He is the slain lamb whose blood has been shed for the salvation of your people. May it make us thankful for your mercy and awestruck at the depth of your love. We ascribe our wholehearted worship to you now through Christ our Savior. Amen.